I'm Aaron Good, and this is the American Exception Podcast. Today, we are lucky to be visited by two accomplished scholars and old friends of mine, Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth. Mickey Huff is the director of Project Censored, as well as a professor of social science, history, and journalism at Diablo Valley College, where he co-chairs both the history and journalism departments. He's also executive producer and host of the Project Censored show, a weekly syndicated public affairs program he founded with former Project Censored director Peter Phillips in 2010. The program originates from the historic studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California, airs on 50 stations around the U.S., and is also now a podcast online. Andy Lee Roth is the associate director of Project Censored. He coordinates the project's Campus Affiliates Program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. His research and writing have been published in a variety of outlets, including Index on Censorship, In These Times, Yes Magazine, Media Culture and Society, and the International Journal of Press Politics. Roth earned a PhD in sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and has taught at a number of universities. He also serves on the board of the Media Freedom Foundation. Andy Lee Roth and Mickey Huff are co-editors of Project Censored's newest book, The State of the Free Press 2022, just released under their new publishing imprint, The Censored Press. Mickey Huff and Andy Lee Roth, it's great to have you here today. Super cool to join you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be here. Uh, Mickey, can you tell us about Project Censored? What is Project Censored? What do you guys do? And and, and is there censorship in America? (laughs) Well, that's a fascinating question there, Aaron, and I'm sure you already know the answer to that. Um, There certainly is uh, censorship in the U.S., um, to varying degrees and in different manifestations, right? It comes in different guises. And I'm sure um, Andy Lee Roth and I will talk with you about that in our, in our conversation today. Project Censored um, is a media watchdog organization founded in 1976 by Carl Jensen. And Jensen launched a, a, a course, as, as, uh, as it were, on, on basically what is critical media literacy applied to, to news. But that phrase or those terms weren't being used then. Um, but this was spawned from his reading of media coverage of, of uh, the Nixon years, particularly the Watergate scandal, his re-election campaign. And what Jensen came to discover is there was a lot more known and being reported in the independent or alternative media that wasn't in the legacy press at the time. And this caused him to ask this bigger question that, of course, has, was the genesis of the project. And here we are 45 years later, and that is, well, what does the corporate media not cover or how do they cover the things that they cover? What is the frame? What is the slant? What is the bias, as it were? And so since then, Project Censored has investigated you know, what, what is the news, um, who, is, who, who puts together the news, who's behind the news. Essentially, what we do is we, we analyze um, the news that, well, the news that doesn't make the news and, 
And we try to figure out why while teaching people to broaden their media habits, broaden their media diet. Um, so that's basically what we do at Project Censored is we have a curriculum that rolls out. And I know Andy's going to talk more about this. But we actually teach people how to think critically about the media, how to find diverse media sources. We publish an annual book. We have a weekly radio program, the Project Censored show that explores these very issues. Uh, we have several documentary films, and we've got a lot of information online for free. So in a nutshell, uh, that's, that's sort of what Project Censored is, where we came from. You can learn more at projectcensored.org. Great. And you guys release a book every year. Uh, Andy, can you um, tell me about the book this year and maybe the history of the Project Censored books? Because they've been coming out for a long time. So maybe you could inform us about the things that you guys have done over the over the years and then talk about this year's installment as well. Yeah, the, this year's book is Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. And uh, it's an exciting one for us. Uh, every book is exciting, but this one is an especially exciting one for us because it's the first book to be published as a joint partnership between the Censored Press, which is the new publishing imprint of Project Censored and the project's uh, nonprofit um, sponsor, the Media Freedom Foundation. The Censored Press, in conjunction with our longtime publisher, Seven Stories Press out of New York City. Um, Carl Jensen, who Peter mentioned a moment ago, had this idea that uh, of news inflation, the idea that we have more and more, um, let me, uh, that we have more and more news, but it seems to be worth less and less. And I think you could uh, think of each volume of the annual censored yearbook, including State of the Free Press 2022, as kind of our attempt, the project's attempt uh, at an antidote to that notion of news inflation, right? If we have a 24-7 stream of punditry and hot takes uh, that often serve to uh, confuse rather than clarify the situation, um, the contents of State of the Free Press 2022 are, are, are hopefully curated and carefully analyzed um, in order to provide people who read the book with a really clear and firm grasp of what the key issues are uh, kind of in media politics in the United States over the last year. So, you know, I mentioned the 24-7 news cycle. Uh, we sometimes joke at Project Censored that we have a 52-12 news cycle, right? We put out a book a year, um, and that allows us to step back and look at some big picture issues that maybe get lost in the fray of the constantly spinning 24-7 news cycle. So the book features, as it always does, our annual list of the 25 most important but underreported news stories, a list that is the result of literally hundreds of people uh, working together uh, and our international panel of expert judges voting ultimately to determine the year's top 25 stories. Uh, we can dive into some of those. Later, perhaps, uh, we also uh, have the Deja Vu news chapter, which looks back at what's happened to previous stories the project has covered to see whether they've gained traction in the corporate media. We look at junk food news and news abuse, two forms of, uh, uh, of kind of uh, modern uh, 21st century censorship, um, flooding um, 
flooding the the news ecosystem with trivialities uh, and sensational news in the place of real hard-hitting investigative journalism and news abuse kind of uh, addressing spin and slant in news coverage of truly important issues. And all that's a pretty heavy trip. Uh, so the book ends up, uh, Aaron, with um, our Media Democracy in Action chapter, which highlights uh, maybe the, ob- the other side of the coin uh, people in organizations that are exemplars of what's possible in terms of really hard-hitting investigative journalism, the cutting edge of critical media literacy education, um, and in general, things that can serve as models uh, that could be adapted to other contexts uh, and and taken and run with by other people and groups to turn the tide uh, uh, on this what otherwise is a fairly dismal assessment of uh, the state of the free press in the United States in 2022. Right. Because it's, I, I, we've done a number of episodes on propaganda and so on in the U S and it, I, it's hard to say how this is in historical perspective, because the more that you know about it, the more you have a bigger picture of how bad it is, at the present moment, and then the history of it as well, you're more aware of. So it just seems to be like a crescendo of just, you know, uh, awfulness. And that this moment that we're in right now, it seems to be, you know, a, a kind of low point that exceeds the previous low points, which immediately preceded it in a number of ways. So it's a real, it's a real difficult time to even know how to, how to grapple with these things. I think there's truth to that. Uh, I think there are ways in which we can point to things that are historically unprecedented um, uh, and not positive in terms of the state of the free press in the United States. I'll list two, but then I immediately want to come back and counter and give counterpoint to that. Um, one is, um, although we can talk about propaganda uh, with a long and rich uh, history, uh, an infamous history perhaps of propaganda within the U.S. on behalf of U.S. imperial interests, for instance, um, the extent of surveillance today is, I believe, historically unprecedented and puts challenges on the doing of journalism that uh, previous generations of journalists simply have not been susceptible to. Right. Uh, the, the advent of online technologies and social platforms and such um, uh, also allow for greater degrees of surveillance, uh, which uh, we know is directly connected to self-censorship uh, uh, by, by journalists and all types of people who tell inconvenient stories about the society and the role of the United States in the world. So that's that's an aspect uh, uh, where there are challenges to freedom of the press in the United States that I do believe are historically unprecedented. The COVID-19 pandemic, I think, also um, uh, creates challenges. The Pointer Institute in December of last year came out with a study showing that since March of 2020, uh, more than 100 local newsrooms had shut uh, down, had ceased operation uh, because they couldn't make a go of it economically uh, in the face of the pandemic. And that trend contributes to what we know as news deserts, the idea that there are local communities where there's no news reporting whatsoever. That's another heavy and I believe historically unprecedented kind of uh, challenge to freedom of press and the state of the free press in the United States. 
But I, I quickly then want to move forward and counterbalance that and say we've never had in the United States uh, as strong and robust and independent uh, 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 independent journalism as we do now. Um, and we can talk, and Mickey may want to say things uh, about the ways in which that the robustness of the independent press is under threat now. Um, uh, there's much to be said about that, but the overall strength of the uh, of the free press, if you look at the independent media uh, uh, and independent journalism, is quite strong, and I believe as good uh, or better than it's ever been. And the final thing I would say on this is, in terms of the negativity, remember that the the negativity, the driving, the fear and anxiety, is a central uh, selling point of almost all corporate news. And so the framing of stories in terms to highlight negativity and dismal uh, situations is no accident. Um, and it's really isn't important. Isn't it kind of a superficial negativity, though, largely? I mean, it, it, like there, because there are plenty of negative things that they do not want to cover. That's true. But I think there, I think negativity in the sense, I believe there's a lot of news that is intended to discourage us as to our own efficacy uh, and discourage us at, at, in terms of our uh, desire or our uh, having any faith in the ability of ourselves to organize collectively to address collective problems. And an important counterpoint to that, that the project is always trying to highlight is solutions journalism. Um, and the idea of, of solutions-oriented journalism that is not superficial either, right? Good news stories that aren't simply, oh, the cat was trapped in the tree and the firefighters came with the long hook and ladder truck to rescue it. No, that's the kind of that's the kind of good news you get at the end of the network television news at the end of the hour. Um, but solutions journalism, as championed here in the United States by organizations like Yes Magazine and the Solutions Journalism Network, are telling real stories based on, you know, uh, top level investigative journalism about communities that are organizing together to address longstanding systemic problems. These stories we find every year uh, when we do the top 25, the project's top 25 list, we find every year that these kind of stories uh, that are solution stories are downplayed. They're either marginalized or not covered at all in the corporate news media. And I think that's not a coincidence. I think that's the result of a certain tenor that is tied to uh, the economic model that corporate news is premised on, which is a profit-driven model. Keep eyeballs on the screen because that's how you generate advertising revenues. Yeah. I mean, I, I, with, I wonder about these networks in many ways because their, their view or their ratings are down, but they can somehow afford to like pay Rachel Maddow all this money. I don't, I think that I don't remember which media advocacy person this is, but maybe Mickey or Andy, you guys would know this, but somebody described this as that, that news is kind of a loss leader for, for networks. And I, I thinking thinking about that in this particular climate. I mean, are these uh, entities like pharmaceutical industries or Boeing and Lockheed Martin when they're advertising for like MSNBC? Are they even advertising because it's going to boost sales, or are they advertising to support 
the role that these networks play in terms of, of furthering corporate hegemony over society. Well, as, as, um, thanks Aaron and, uh, and Andy, definitely a lot, a lot to chew on here already. Um, Aaron, I, I'm with you. It's the latter. And, and, you know, the political scientist, Michael Peretti once quipped, uh, actually in, in our second documentary, the ending the reign of junk food news, he was talking about corporate media and he was talking about, you know, how people say like, well, they represent corporate interests and, um, you know, they're profit driven and so on. And, and he quickly stopped and said, no, 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 they are corporate interests. They, there's no firewall. It's all part of the same sort of economic and political hegemony that corporations have over our society that Sheldon Wallen referred to it as inverted totalitarianism, right? Um, this is something that, that is pervasive throughout our culture. And, and then this legacy or establishment media is no different. You cannot turn on cable news without seeing an advertisement for Pfizer or uh, for Big Pharma or for some big ag company or a big tech product and so on. So the synergy in those, in those circles is it's not accidental at all. It's, uh, it's all by design. And we recently saw a lot of um, <clears throat> sort of like uh, faux outrage coming from the uh, CNN and MSNBC and sort of the, the neoliberal wing, if you will, of the corporate media um, when they were losing it over Spotify and Joe Rogan and the misinformation war. And, you know, if you peel back the surface there, Rogan doesn't claim to be a journalist, number one. Number two, you've got to ask, why do people that have something to say that is at least arguable or the public have a right to hear, not on our normal journalistic channels, why do you have to go to an entertainment show to express views that are verboten uh, by the so-called mainstream? But the big one comes right back to what you were saying about declining ratings. Uh, and, and I'm not boosting Rogan here. This is not my purpose, right? I, I don't have much of an opinion, actually, of what, what Rogan is or does vis-a-vis -vis what we're doing here at the project. But what I will say is that He's garnering some 11 million viewers, what it is like a week, on a week, weekly basis or what have you. In other words, he's far and away attracting far more people that want to see what he's doing than what Fox – and Fox, by the way, has far better ratings than CNN or MSNBC. So what's that tell us? Let's also kind of dial back for a minute and how we all get subsumed into this electric circus of corporate media. Um we're only talking about a million or two million people a night that are tuning into a show in a country of 330 million people. Andy and I are interested, where are all these other people going for information? And our book every year highlights the independent alternative voices that people could and should be hearing if only they knew they were there, right? And you remember, Aaron, you know, going through your, your schooling and your period or maybe your unschooling, right, in a lot of ways, given, uh, given how you do political science. Um, you learn about these sources along the way by asking critical questions, by being curious, and by having people in your educational circles that promote uh, curiosity. They promote diversity. They don't just point to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and say, okay, you're good now. Uh, they don't just point to CNN and Fox and say, we've heard from both sides. Um, the media landscape is vastly more complicated and diverse than that. And critical media literacy is something that we, we promote widely at the project. And we think that 
when given the opportunity, people will begin to turn off corporate media and they will go to other sources seeking information. Uh, and I know you're an expert in foreign policy matters, Aaron. We could certainly talk about media coverage of what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO right now as a, a classic example of you know, Western propaganda, corporatist propaganda. Um, we have mass censorship going on right now, huge scale censorship going on. Uh, and it's all being rationalized and, ju- and justified. And it's, it's being really supported widely by the so-called liberal establishment media. And so if that doesn't tell us something, you know, I'm not sure how – this is pretty obvious to, to people paying attention. Um, this should be an obvious thing that gets people questioning where they get their information. And if they don't know where to turn, they can go to our website, projectcensored.org. We have a huge list of – not exhaustive, but huge list of independent media sources. We vet and catalog underreported stories every year that have been fact-checked over and over. Um, There are plenty, despite the direness of the media deserts and despite the challenges we face, the irony, as Andy clearly pointed out, is that we also do have a lot of places to get great information if people only know where to find it. Yeah, this is true. And this is the strangest thing about today is that you actually can become very informed and you can understand issues in a way that makes the uh, reporting of the New York Times or MSNBC seem just like outright state propaganda. And it, that's the, that's a both, it's heartening in a way to know that you can figure out what's going on, but it's alarming in that even with the information out there, it's, you have to have a public that's able to discern good information and know where to get it. And they do not, you, you guys are one of the few outlets that I think has some real journalistic or uh, and academic integrity because you kind of work, uh, you know, in between those two realms. And there are very few like you. There are other groups that are, I came across one, This and they, this person was on KPFA. And I, I thought, for some reason, I thought this doesn't smell right to me. I'm going to look this up. And it was, uh, they did, had Lee Camp on for half of the show, I guess. And he this was talking Mitch about- Jazzer- yeah, this is Jessica Gonzalez from Free Press, who is advocating for censorship of RT. Yeah, and it's not, it's beyond that. So she's arguing that we need to get RT off the air, which, okay, I'm, I know there are people that would say that, but it's odd that she is employed by a group that calls itself the Free Press. She's the co CEO, and she also her, has done work to get um, RT kicked off uh, the air uh, for this group called uh, Change the Terms. But I looked up free press and they have a annual report and they're talking about the things that they do. And one of them is like campaigning to get like Trump kicked off of Twitter and so on. And so it's like a lot, some of the things that they do seem to be pretty clearly like the opposite of what their name suggests, the free press. And then I, I, they have financials and stuff on their website. They have an operating budget of like $6 million a year. Jessica Gonzalez makes like six figures. I mean, this kind of stuff is nefarious in terms of who's paying. Like, you guys are an outlet out, out there that's, like, actually doing good work, but there's little fake ones like that that are just the opposite. And they have, I mean, I don't want to invade your privacy, but I think that there's they're dealing with more money than you guys have. It's 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 wild that she's like, this is the free press, and, they're, and she's making six figures, and, you know, I represent the free press. Now, can you please do have some more censorship? Well, I can certainly speak to a, a bit of that, and, and 
I will say that Free Press is a diverse organization internally. They do a lot of work legislatively. They do a lot of uh, important work that a lot of people don't see. Um, as far as FCC work goes, regulations go, they've spearheaded a number of important legal cases, and they do fund uh, other grassroots organizations. So um, just in fairness to them as an organization, I wouldn't take those efforts and pretend that that's all that that group has done historically or does do. I mean, if you take a look at their board, they've got people like Victor Picard, who's a stellar media scholar that works with them. I'm not excusing, by the way, um, the remarks from uh, Ms. Gonzalez on Mitch Jezerich's Letters and Politics show, which I was also on a month ago, uh, decrying any such censorship before we hit this latest landslide of it, right? Um, and I disagree profoundly with what those remarks were about the deplatforming, whether it's the platforming of Trump or, the, or, or taking off RT. Uh, I think those are very problematic. Um, arguments. And so I think that we should, um, and you mentioned Lee Camp, right? Um, these, the, again, I'm going to say something bigger about this. That's something we just mentioned. RT, that's where Abby Martin launched Breaking the Set, right? And, and Abby once said that she basically, you know, she, she, she did some work with us at the project early on uh, in her career and said, basically, I kind of took what the project looked like and made a TV show out of it. <laughs> Right. And, but notice where it was. Right. Andy and I were in that building in the studios of RT in Washington, D.C. when we were there to accept the whistleblower award one year. Um, <clears throat> why do you ha why is it that we have to go to foreign state media to hear perspectives critical of U.S. policy, foreign policy, uh, to learn about U.S. history? Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges used to be with The New York Times. His literary journalistic show on contact was housed at RT. Why does he have to go to RT? Why would some? Why would PBS or NPR not roll out the red carpet for somebody as erudite and significant as Chris Hedges? Right. So this raises that really big question about the the frame, the narrow frame that that legacy and corporate media represent in the United States. And as Noam Chomsky's rightly pointed out. You can have wild debate inside that myopic frame, so it looks as though there's a lot of diversity, but most of the important things going on that need to be discussed aren't in that frame. And so you need to diversify your media diet, which means, guess what? You may need to go to state outlets that are biased as propaganda. We know that RT is a form of propaganda, but guess what? So is Al Jazeera, so is BBC, so is uh, Voices of America. We could go on and on. Right. And so the bigger problem is then and again, this is why we at Project Censored do not advocate censorship as the antidote to misinformation or disinformation or fake news. We promote critical media literacy education. We promote free speech, free press, free expression principles. And we also promote society professional journalists ethics code. Right. Of how journalists are supposed to behave. And all of the examples of these stories that we see in our book every year, we think collectively um, represent the fusion of those ideals. And we welcome working with people who share those ideals. Uh, we even welcome working with people who disagree with us about some of these issues because there are common causes between us. And even if there may be a difference, 
between what we may be doing as an organization and some other, Andy and I also always try to find out ways to further advance critical media literacy education, diversification of media, and at least to get our arguments about why censorship is not a good idea out there so that they can uh, be held up. When we see someone saying that we want to deplatform so-and-so and we want to silence this voice, we hope that we at Project Censored uh, are loud enough and are intelligent enough in the way we go about what we do that we will at least get some attention so that people consider why censorship can be such a slippery slope. Andy, what, do you want to maybe talk about some of the stories from this year? I mean, I think you're, uh, if you can add to what Mickey said, but and additionally, maybe talk about your number one censored story, which involves our, some of our favorite uh, mafia crime families that uh, run the pharmaceutical industry. So, uh, yeah, it, what, what, uh, talk about some of these censored stories. Yeah, let me, before I do that, let me just pick up on one, one aspect of freedom of the press that I'm uh, interested in promoting. Um, there's an important book called the Net networked press freedom by Mike Anony, um, who's a media scholar at university of Southern California. And he talks in networked press freedom about the public right to hear. And the argument is basically that democratic self-government requires more than an individual right to speak. It also requires a public right to hear. And I think that principle, that insight is highly relevant to um, some of the points that Mickey's just been making and some of the conundrums that we're facing now about, you know, what happens to RT or what happens to Joe Rogan and so forth and so on. Um, and if you think about it in a public right to hear perspective, um, you know, that ultimately uh, suggests that the answer is not to kick RT off the air, which incidentally, I think it's very important to know. And we talk about this in State of the Free Press 2022. This is not a case of government censorship. The U.S. government didn't have to kick RT America off the air. Direct TV and Roku, corporate entities, effectively did it for them. Right. This is what we refer to as censorship by proxy. Yeah, that happened to me a couple of years ago. They actually they took it off my cable, and I that was one of the that was the only news thing I could watch at that point. It was like hit or miss. They had some bad shows, but like I know that they're not going to give me the like U.S. spin. And as I calculated, most of their interests in terms of the propaganda goals that they want to accomplish were pretty much aligned with reporting things fairly straightforwardly uh as a as a journalistic outlet so it was a bummer that they canceled it not that i'm yeah. wanting to join putin's army or anything like that right well i think that's part of the propaganda is that if you listen to rt america you're a patsy for putin um and as mickey's pointed out they're important perspectives that have had rt america as their platform people like abby martin and chris hedges right? Dissident American perspectives that RT America has provided a platform for that are now silenced. Um, Kiriakou, Kiriakou's on, on Sputnik. That guy is right. a hero. He, he's like, he was the only person to go to jail for the torture 
program and he and that was for exposing it and he's good on the radio too so this is just like they they will it is a, a kind of censorship to to force people to these outlets but my bigger point here is not so much about RT America but about how RT America got deplatformed right there's no violation of the first amendment here direct tv and roku made decisions that they would no longer carry it they're not government entities um they're not subject to the first amendment they made decisions that then had a kind of a domino effect on other outlets and ultimately RT America had no distribution. And so that tells us a lot about, you, you know, if you're going to be critically media literate in the 21st century, you need to understand the media ecosystem. You can't be focusing an effect on single species like RT America or the Fred Rogan, uh, you know, Joe Rogan show or whatever. Um, you need you need to understand the ecosystem as a whole and the interplay of the parts of the ecosystem. And so it's, you know, in the book, we quote from Timothy Garton Ash, who talks about, uh, this is an example, Google may not be a country, but it is a superpower, right? The, the big media giants, Alphabet, which owns Google and YouTube, Facebook, uh, now Meta and Instagram, um, Twitter, Apple, Microsoft, they function as arbiters of public issues and legitimate discourse, right? Uh, I, I, they are what I've referred to in other uh, articles, the new gatekeepers. Um, only they're gatekeepers who have no commitment to the ethics of good journalism. Their commitment is to bottom line profits. And that's a fundamental uh, concern that I think isn't evident within the parameters of debate that you hear in, in the corporate news itself, right? That's a, a, that, that, that's beyond the pale. That's not discussed um, because of the corporate perspective we've been talking about. Um, let me pivot though, like, uh, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about some of our uh, top stories from this year, our uh, number one story uh, is about, prescription drug costs uh, projected to become the leading cause of death for elderly Americans. Um, this is what's referred to in the business as cost-related non-adherence. So non-adherence, you don't take the full prescribed cycle of whatever uh, drug your uh, uh, primary care doc has prescribed you, not because you're lazy or you don't want to, but because you can't afford it. Um, a study uh, published in November of 2020 by West Health uh, Policy Center, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy group, determined that uh, rising cost of prescription uh, medicines will lead to an estimated 112,000 premature deaths each year due to people being unable to afford, due to elderly Americans being unable to afford their medications. They, these are uh, seniors who are on the federal government's Medicare program. So when you project that out over a 10-year period, it's something like 1.1 million people uh, who will die prematurely for completely preventable, um, uh, 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 from pre completely preventable causes. Um, the important thing I think about this West Health Policy Center in line with things I was saying earlier about solutions journalism um, is uh, the same study uh, suggested how policy changes could lower the cost of prescription drugs and uh, curb the power of big pharma. 
um, resulting in far fewer affordable, affordable, excuse me, far fewer avoidable deaths. Um, one of those policy recommendations was uh, uh, one that progressives have advocated for for some time, which is empowering Medicare to negotiate directly with drug companies on behalf of patients. And that that single change alone, the West Health Policy Center study estimated would prevent something like 93,000 deaths uh, per year and would reduce Medicare spending by, I'll pronounce this carefully because it's a huge number, by $475.9 billion by the year 2030. So the solutions are out there, um, but this is a story that as we, uh, as we research this story, um, as this story underwent the five separate review uh, uh, stages of review that each story undergoes before it makes the project's annual top 25 story list, um, we found that, yes, indeed, there'd been quite a bit of coverage in the last 12 months of rising drug prices, but no coverage whatsoever of the West Health Policy uh, Center's study showing the impacts of those rising uh, drug costs on the the country's seniors, people on Medicare, and especially no um, corporate news coverage of the solutions that the West Health Policy Center study uh, advocated. Yeah, I did hear a little something about prescription prices and deaths. There was a an ad that came on and it was a woman telling me about her daughter who has a rare disease and that she warned that if uh, Congress takes action to reduce prescription uh, drug costs, it'll lower the amount of funding to do research for drugs that might help her daughter's terrible disease. And so you should call your congressman and, and demand that they uh, don't that they uh, oppose efforts to rein in drug prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big pharma uh, has many tentacles. So it, it's I mean the, it's wild that the media will not tell you about all these people dying and instead tell you that somebody else is going to die if you try to do anything about well, it. Well, Aaron, and as you just pointed out, you have companies like Pfizer or Moderna that were big players in the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, as far as vaccines go and this business. And, you know, you have people, you know, say, you know decrying how the uh, they should be available. One of the stories we have, in fact, in the book this year is about how big pharma was preventing the global South and other countries from getting access to the, this type of medical technology, right? So they're, they're not really interested in helping people or fighting the pandemic as much as they are interested in maintaining their kind of corporate hegemony and their narrative control over what basically is corporate medicine, as it were, disease maintenance, not like promoting healthy living. So that's another flip side of this. And, you know, again, it, it's, it's comical and, and, and also tragic that a lot of folks got swept up in the big pharma propaganda. I'm on team farm. I'm on team Pfizer and I'm on team Moderna and I'm on team J and J. Guess what? All of those companies have record level fines for causing mass damage to the population through their, through their flawed products, right? That's a big story. And by the way, both things can be true. They can produce things that are helpful, and they can also cause great harm. Wow, cognitive dissonance. Are we spinning yet? Is your head exploding? But this is why critical media literacy is so important, is that it helps us understand that these are complicated stories and that the actors in on the stage 
you know, they're not the only ones that, that are sort of setting things, right? The framing of those messages, like you just said, that example that you just gave a moment ago, Aaron, right? Um, about how these companies are behind this effort to say, well, you know, if we cut the prices, we can't help little Susie over there or whatever the person is. You know, that insidious and nefarious uh, type of, of enterprise should be called out at every turn. Um, there's, if, if these things are as important as these companies are claiming, they shouldn't have to create elaborate narratives to support them. You know, as people like Michael Pollan who writes about food politics, you know, once, once said, you don't see a lot of advertisements on TV for lettuce or carrots or, you know, or apples or, or, you know, you don't see a lot of advertisements for healthy foods, right? You only see advertisements for extraordinarily processed foods that are likely bad for you, that are expensive to produce so that they make profits from it, right? And if you can kind of take that analogy over to the junk food news, right, category, it's kind of the same thing we see, that negative spin, the sensationalist spin, the, how we dig into people's um, sort of uh, schadenfreude sense the, the, of humilitainment that we write about, right? We, we somehow elevate ourselves when other people are knocked down and, and we feel better about ourselves when other people are, are, are not doing well. Um, you know, that's all part of this toxic stew of, of advertising and public relations and corporate control of narratives that we're talking about. And that's why too, and Andy, uh, again, we, we do this often and Andy rightfully pointed this out at the start of our conversation. What we do at Project Censored is we also try to elevate solutions-based stories and organizations that are proactively addressing the many challenges that the stories we repost, you know, address. But the purpose, and the purpose isn't to give people a banal sense of hope, like as some kind of a political slogan, as we've seen, it's to actually let people know that if, if we really support free press principles, you can find organizations and individuals and people reporting about these things. You can find people doing things to fight, um, you know, to fight against the, these, these, these problems we have in our society, whether it be foreign policy or, or access to medicine and health treatment or access to, you know, to healthy food or clean water. Let's not forget a number of the stories we've done over the years showcase not just Flint, Michigan, but many of America's cities have poor water. Um, you know, let, yet you, when you hear about those stories, we're only supposed to think about the th so-called third world and so on. So, you know, again, that's kind of riffing back to that, that whole diet of our news media and, and what we get and how we really need to make concerted efforts. We have to have the agency to go beyond. We have to go beyond whatever the clicker says and, you know, what's blast in our face. And we've got to look not just beneath the surface, but we've got to broaden it to find where are these different and diverse voices talking about things happening in our communities. And the good news is, is that they're there. The bad news is, is that, well, it's needle in a haystack. It's hard for people who don't know about these things to, in effect, know about them. So a big thing that I think Project Censored has done, and I know what it did for me, once upon a time, right, before I got really involved with Project Censored, I found the first Project Censored book at a Barnes & Noble in 1993, right? And I said, wow, look at all the things that are in here that I, I didn't know about. And so I think every year when Andy and I do this book, you know, for us, it's, it feels like old hat. For us, it feels like here we go again. But I always remember the first, that first time, 
and I think about the first time someone goes to our website or hears our show or sees our book, and it just cracks open a whole new world for them. And I think that we we people especially that are into the weeds of it all, and Aaron, <laughs> you're into the weeds with us with so many of the things that you do, it's important to remind people that we all started somewhere. And diving into the deep end of the pool can be disorienting, and it can, it can be worrisome. But we have to remember that there's a lot of other people that are already in there swimming, and we need to do the best we can to help people understand why we think these things matter, and we need to bring them along for the ride. You know, we need to successively build another generation of media literate citizens, intrepid reporters, and people that do not just the kind of work that we've done at the project that Carl and Peter have done and Andy and I do, but we need to continue to do it and support the kind of work that people like you do, Aaron, right, on the tripart state, on the deep state. And this is very significant and important history, untold history, right, or unhistory, the things we need to know that our schools and our legacy media outlets aren't telling us. And so we think that there's a great connection between these things, and we appreciate opportunities to be in dialogue about them with you to remind people that it's never too late to broaden your horizons and to look into different sources, and there's no shame in changing one's mind when they learn new information. Yeah, I think that this is – it's very essential to – reach people and to and to present things in an accessible way and to somehow offer deeper dives to, to the initiated but still to be accessible in terms of presenting the sort of fundamental issues to people i think it's not that hard to convince people that there's they are being ripped off by corporate forces all the time because people experience it in their real lives dealing with insurance companies and uh, student loans and everything else i mean there's no getting around it the issue of journal journalists today, and this kind of gets into your second story, that your, your number two story here. I, you know, I have a grimmer view of of the state, as you guys know, uh, and, and its kind of criminal essence in many ways. And I, I look at the fact that Assange is in jail as a new and an extremely uh, troubling development. And additionally, I, I as, as this Ukraine stuff has happened, it's made me think about Robert Perry. And his untimely demise, and Michael Hastings also, I, it seems a very awful coincidence that two of the best journalists in terms of like having a high profile and a historical you know, body of work behind them, they both died you know, as America is at this peak of kind of imperial uh, lawlessness, I think. And the Ukraine business shows you that I, Perry's reporting seems rather incendiary now. When it's eight years old, I mean, this is really something. And they just died. Maybe they died of natural causes, maybe not. But either way, Assange is definitely getting the full weight of the state put down on him. And your second story of the year is about journalists who are threatened by surveillance uh, and, and how it makes their jobs more difficult. So how what's the significance of this, the state's involvement in uh, stopping investigative journalism. How should we think about this? Well, before I talk about the number two story, let me uh, uh, back up and talk uh, some, as Mickey and I do in the introduction to State of the Free Press 2022, about not only chilling threats to journalists and journalism in the United States, but also like flat out physical threats. Um, We quote from the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which uh, meticulously documents attacks on uh, uh, 
attacks on journalism, uh, literal, not metaphorical attacks. Uh, we quote from the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker how between May 26th of 2020 to May 25th of 2021, there were 415 assaults on journalists, 153 arrests of journalists, and 105 cases of damage inflicted on journalists' equipment. These were entirely unprecedented numbers. They amounted to more in a 12-month period than the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker had documented over a previous chunk of something like three to four years, right? So all in one year, all in one year. Uh, during that period, uh, journalists were, of course, uh, covering the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but the interesting thing about this meticulous documentation I talk about is that more than 85% of those instances that were documented by U.S. Press Freedom Tracker were perpetuated by law enforcement. So this is the this is the physical arm of the government uh, cracking down, uh, and I don't use that term lightly, cracking down on journalists covering some of the most per, uh, extensive uh, social protest in recent history, social protests that took place in some sense under uh, in violation of um, of um, of regulations intended to stop the spread of COVID. And so people were engaged in civil disobedience simply be, by being out on the streets in protest, uh, in solidarity with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and journalists covering uh, that unrest uh, were subject to state violence. Um, moving moving uh, out from that and thinking now internationally, not just in the United States, our number two story is about journalists investigating financial crimes being subject to threats by global elites of one sort or another. Um, and this is based on reporting done by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Um, global elites uh, have been uh, using intimidating legal and financial powers to target reporters uh, who are covering uh, financial crimes or alleged financial crimes. The reporters that we're talking about have been targeted with everything from defamation lawsuits and cease and desist letters to social media smear campaigns and online trolling, verbal harassment, and even uh, uh, on occasions of physical violence. Um, the role of the government in this, uh, I, I mean, I could go on about the particular types of threats, uh, but let me briefly for now uh, describe one way that government plays a role in this and then the, end with the consequences but before doing that, let me point out all the stories that uh, uh, we talk about in this year's book are also available on the Project Censored website. Uh, you can go and see not only this year's top 25 story list, but an archive of all the annual story lists going back to the very first one uh, back in 1976. So the, the role of the government in this, what, one of the complex aspects of this story um, is something that was reported uh, by The Guardian, uh, which is how the United Kingdom has become a, a, a hotbed for this kind of attack on journalists covering, international journalists covering um, financial crimes. Um, Nick the, Cohen city the, of, the city of London and the Isle of Jersey, as I understand it, are essentially like 
you know, crime, crime principalities or something. (laughs) Yeah. Nick Cohen uh, in May of 2021 reported in The Guardian uh, and he described how the United Kingdom's uh, court system. Right. So this is the legal branch of the UK government had turned uh, uh, the UK into the censorship capital of the democratic world. And this is because uh, there are plaintiff friendly defamation laws that corporations can use against journalists, not just UK journalists, but uh, the argument would be uh, in this digitized uh, uh, internet connected world that a reporter in Africa reporting on financial crime and corruption in Africa uh, has uh, their stories may reach uh, audience in the UK and therefore subject to UK anti-defamation laws that the corporations or the powerful uh, uh, powers that be can then use to bring suit, defamation suit against the journalist, either harassing them or 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 um, simply putting them off the story. And so the, the study that this story is based on found that more than 70% of the journalists who responded um, reported being subject to threats of legal action against them for their reporting on these financial crimes. And this, of course, just to kind of cap this story, right, this has a chilling effect on reporting about corruption and it ultimately infringes on the public's right to know what I was talking about, this public right to hear, right? The public's right to know about things like money laundering, bribery, theft of public funds, and other illicit acts that are either being uh, carried out by or are facilitated by, you know, wealthy global banking uh, uh, entities, uh, government officials, or other corporate leaders, right? And so um, this is... This is, uh, you know, I think of this story on this year's list as this is a censored story about censorship, right? When we looked, when we looked for coverage of this, we found uh, that this story had been briefly mentioned in a VOA report, um, uh, but otherwise, no major U.S. Uh, newspaper or network had covered the report that uh, that this story is based on. It was simply invisible in the American establishment press. So yeah. a story about just again to to recap. Um, so a story about how journalists are thwarted in their efforts to report the truth to the public gets no public coverage in the U.S. corporate news media. So it's grim, but not not surprising. Now I feel at, that currently we are at a moment of. Uh, where key ideas are are censored, his history is being censored. This business in Ukraine, to me, is a low point in terms of public discourse, and that is really saying something in this context. I came across, it was a Tariq Ali, Ali article that was published in the London Review of Books, and he has this, which I, I think I'd come across years ago, because I've been following this story since the coup happened, because by the in 2014, I study U.S. regime change operations all the time, and I this it seemed apparent to be obviously like a U.S. operation, and more facts came out to bear that out. And then around that time, people were writing about this, and they referred to um, an intelligence report presented to Condoleezza Rice in 2008, which had this warning, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite 
in more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian players from knuckle draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. Pursuing this strategy of destabilizing Ukraine or weaponizing Ukraine uh, would, f- would create fertile soil for Russian meddling in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And that was written by William Burns, who's now the director of the CIA. Um, and so you fast forward to 2014, and you have that coup in the Ukraine, which involves murdering people, uh, you know, with snipers and Nazis, Nazi thugs going in, being deployed by the U.S. Uh, you know, I mean... You say Nazi, and it's like that term maybe has been a little bit uh, robbed of its uh, power because of like you know the the people in the pussy hats claimed to be standing up to Nazis, right? But I mean, you know, we know that we know our history here. We know that Stalin and twenty six million uh, Russians didn't put on pussy hats to go fight the real Nazis, right? So the real Nazis, or some real Nazis who actually have a Nazi ideology, are in Ukraine being deployed by the U.S. to install a government specifically to weaponize the country against Ukraine. And yet all the reporting today is there's this, there's this guy, he's basically Hitler. He may as well be the reincarnation of Hitler, but his name is Vladimir Putin. And for no reason at all, he has invaded Ukraine. We need a no-fly zone, perhaps. (laughs) I mean, how, how, what do you, what do you even make of this level of like the censorship of, of, of key important facts so that the public debate is just completely idiotic? Here, Aaron, you don't need to censor things that the public doesn't even really know. Um, You know, to joke about Gore Vidal's United States of Amnesia, um, this would mean that many people would have to have forgotten um, Brzezinski, have forgotten the Kissingers, have forgotten the Clinton-Yeltsin years. We can go back, right? And uh, our our mutual friend, Peter Kuznick, we've all had these conversations Right, the important history that leads up to now is what most people in America and the United States don't know. Um, and so, when, for example, I followed everything you just said, and you know, back in 2014, Project Censored did a chapter in a book for Clarity Press, edited by Stephen Lenman, called Flashpoint Ukraine. Um, I, along with Peter Phillips and Nolan Higdon, wrote a whole article about the history there, U.S. NATO propaganda, top-down, you know, media control, narrative control. You know, it's interesting. I went back and looked at that uh, recently, right? Um, I don't know. It's like we've got the tea leaves out or something. Uh, We're talking about the stuff happening then and why it was happening, why people don't seem to know about it, and what catastrophic consequences there could be um, for that kind of meddling. In, in the current climate, if you mention the United States and NATO, you're accused of whataboutism. Uh, if you mention the fact that the U.S. is behind bombings in Somalia, Yemen, support of Israel and Palestine, I mean, this stuff has all been happening in the last several weeks, these kinds of attacks around the world. And that invokes, of course, the worthy-unworthy victims analysis from Ed Herman, Noam Chomsky, uh, Manufacturing Consent. Uh, Chris Hedges literally just wrote about this a week ago. Um, so I think we have a real struggle before us because we're getting, you know, as soon as the, uh, uh, the invasion and bombing, the illegal and catastrophic bombing and attack that Putin is doing on Ukraine, let's get that straight, right? It, that's a real problem. 
but it, what we saw was a quick knee-jerk sort of uh, social media response of people putting blue and gold in their uh, in their profiles and likening Putin to Hitler, making all kinds of ahistorical claims. That's directly a result of people, A, not being critically media literate, and B, um, our educational system. You know, we teach y- your book coming out, American Exception, right? Um, we teach the exceptionalist versions of our historiography. So, you know, when I'm teaching the modern, my modern U.S. history class and, you know, I talk about Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick's book, uh, Untold History, and we, we talk about the role of Russia in World War II, most of the class, their head spins in circles and they're saying, this can't be true. Um, and it's saying, because well, they, they saw, say, they might have seen Saving Private Ryan and, and they learned well, exactly. that it was the U.S. that beat the Nazis. They're inundated with this other propaganda. And this gets back to, again, what Andy was saying earlier about you know, why we need to have uh, – we need to hear these diverse opinions. We, we need – and again, he was right. Andy said it, the, the U.S. government didn't shut down RT. They didn't need to, right? That's the way this end-around system has been made so that the corporate interests are aligned with government, but they pretend as if they're separate. Right. And in the case here, what we're seeing in Ukraine is we're seeing a massive transnational capitalist boycott of Russian oligarchs. What would happen if those same groups boycotted American oligarchs? Because we've got plenty of our own. We just don't frame them that way. Right. And in a lot of ways, the ahistorical way of looking at what's happening with Ukraine is very problematic. It doesn't justify, in my mind, the violence being meted out by Russia. And there's a lot of protest in Russia right now. And there's actually heinous crackdowns on the media in Russia, right? There's a lot of issues going on here that aren't being unpacked very well in the corporate media. Um, But we need to understand the history of how we got here. We need to understand the red line talk. And we need to move beyond the simple black-white narratives, the simple false balancing um, we've heard from both sides because that's not journalism. That's propaganda. And we need more people. Like The, the Stephen Lenman book is so prescient and, and timely, even though it was, came out in 2014. Take a look at who's in that book. You know, um, There's some really great propaganda scholars. Ed Herman himself was in, in that book. James Petrus, others. People that one would hope would be household names in the U.S., but are not, because that is all very carefully managed. And I think, again, I see them as related. I see the way that media is controlled, the way that education is controlled. Um, I see those as, as sort of same sides of the problematic coin of, of censorship in general. I, I think it's important to add, too, with regarding to Ukraine, like how um, U.S. political leadership and U.S. corporate media have fallen into close alignment uh, about uh, Putin's attack, which I want to reiterate, uh, you know, I, I it's it's uh, a travesty and to be condemned. Um, uh, so pointing the point I'm about to make is not to condone uh, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, but to put perspective on it. Um, uh, everyone from Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi to uh, major TV networks talked about Putin's assault as quote unprovoked, and that's propaganda, right? That's propaganda that paints Putin as. Uh, someone who can't be reasoned with, uh, as uh, someone for whom nothing less than, uh, you know, military force will ultimately dissuade him from doing what he does. 
Um, and that's propaganda, right? Uh, the, uh, there was a very good article uh, by Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting uh, earlier this month called Calling Russia's Attack Unprovoked Let's U.S. Off the Hook. And uh, the, the point the article makes, and I think that dovetails with things Mickey has been saying, is that if you understand uh, kind of historical geopolitical context, there are good reasons why Putin might want to invade the Ukraine. Um, and that if we were to put the shoe on the other foot and imagine similarly um, developed military buildup on the Canadian-U.S. border or the Mexico-U.S. border, um, the U.S. response might not look so entirely different. Um, so to call the attacks unprovoked Right, which uh, is not only the media picking up on and simply repeating what political leadership in the U.S. have done and said, uh, but it's it's a that is itself a propagandistic frame for making sense of uh, what's going on in Ukraine and the and the role of uh, of you know either the forces of kind of Russia's cultural history, or uh, there are more complex, subtle versions of that. Um, um, but I, I think that argument itself is, is you know, this is the U.S. Uh, uh, propaganda machine at work to justify the responses being, uh, the responses that suit U.S. interests. Yeah, I I have to say that I feel a outrage about this in a way that the normal imperial uh, you know, criminality of the US does not really bother me because the US by doing this to a nuclear power is essentially uh putting us all at risk by doing this to they threat they put they spent billions trying on this. We heard have Victoria Newland on tape bragging about it in front of a standard oil sign. For Christ's sakes, talking about billions of dollars spent on civil society in Ukraine before that coup. The coup itself, backed by the U.S., she's on tape also talking about that. It's quite well documented. And this was done specifically because to turn Ukraine into a U.S. satellite or a U.S. proxy state it, it is a way to threaten Russia. And Russia did things that the U.S. hated, like, for example, stopping the U.S. al-Qaeda dirty war in Syria uh, from achieving its objective of regime change in Syria, which is so blatantly criminal. And um, by now, orders as, at this point, at least, it's orders of magnitude more deadly and destructive than what Putin has been, and than what Russia has been doing in Ukraine. But this will never be, be mentioned. The U.S. is illegally occupying Ukraine, part of Syria right now and stealing its oil. And, and this is obviously imperialist. This is not of any threat that Syria poses to the United States. I was riding my bike around yesterday and I was and I've been to Hiroshima, I've been to Nagasaki, so I've been immersed in this nuclear but business for quite a while. I've read Ellsberg's memoir and I'm I'm friends with Dan. And this nuclear issue is something that I've thought a good bit about, but it just seems more real to me now thinking about what these people are doing and just that you could be doing anything. You could be riding a bike around and then the sky you you might see you might be somewhere where you see a mushroom cloud and you realize what has happened or it might just get really dark over time as this nuclear winter prospect and like horrors that are unimaginable could become reality. They're not just totally abstract. And yet this 
aspect of it is censored to the point that you have these liberal nerds on NPR being like, why don't we put up a no-fly zone? It seems very sensible to me. I, I just, I cannot recall such madness. Well, ahistorical useful idiots abound. And, you know, they, they are easily, they can prop up these narratives very easily. Um, we just did a show uh, not long ago with Harvey Wasserman and Peter Kuznick talking about Ukraine's um, nuclear power plants, including Chernobyl, which is already leaking. And so this is to get more to your existential threat question, and you'd think that that would be something that the media might be interested in, is that it wouldn't be difficult at all for there to be a horrible accident, uh, attack, what have you, the chaos of war, where one of these power plants is attacked, uh, let alone the fact that you're dealing with nuclear powers, with, with nuclear weaponry, let alone that Russia and China now have more reason to um, work in unison together against U.S. NATO interests. Um, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's pretty riveting that um, we, we don't hear that, that perspective. I had so many people you know, say after we did these shows, they're like, there's so much going on, whether it's COVID or Russia or what have you. I, I didn't even think about, you know, some of these other really serious things that could be happening. Well, why not? Well, that's because the media is inundating them with other messages, right? And this goes right back to where we started. If you don't ask questions about the media, if you don't ask questions about what what your government is doing and saying, if you don't ask questions about the corporations that are controlling the narratives, then you're likely going to be led along by the nose. I mean, let's remember – very well-educated people end up in these corporate media outlets that were led around by the nose on Twitter from Trump for four years, um, where they had a really hard time focusing on uh, you know, the real crimes and real problems taking place. They wasted at least a couple years on Russiagate. And I say wasted because of the outcome, but it wasn't wasted long-term big picture because that's been cranking up the, the, the Cold War knob again. That's been cranking up the anti the, uh, the Russia phobia business, and here we are with it. Right? It's been we've been pre propagandized. It's been pre mediated over several years again that we knee jerk react to these things without understanding their complexity and without understanding what it means to provoke a major nuclear power. And I want to reiterate what Andy said: there, there, there doesn't need to be a direct finger in the eye for there to be a gotcha provocation. The provocation has been three decades in the making, and it's been extraordinarily ramped up through the so-called war on terror and then during the Obama-Biden years. And now here we are again with Biden, right? I mean, this is no surprise. Victoria Nolan's still around. These people are all there. They're architects of a lot of what's happening there. And the corporate media is, I believe, purposefully not looking at these issues because they are again framing this as as a as a sort of the two sides only position, and between the military industrial complex, big tech uh, surveillance, etc., fossil fuels, they're all making hand over fist money on war technologies, right? So we really have to kind of go back to critical media literacy again and ask what's behind these messages, what's behind these outlets, why is it so easy to see? Putin's a thug and a bad oligarch, but it's so difficult to find out even the rudimentary history of U.S.-NATO provocation in the region. And I, again, will say all of that without at all justifying or condoning what atrocities are being committed now in Ukraine. 
right? But this is, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And at some point, our survival might really depend upon it. Because, you know, Iron Maiden's going to have to rewrite Two Minutes to Midnight because we're down to 100 seconds on the doomsday clock, right? That was something that was a concern in the 80s. It seems like it's gone down the memory hole. So I'm hopeful, Aaron, that maybe our media will start reminding folks um, of what the, you know, how serious the threats going on around the world really are and what role the U.S. has played in them. Well, to that end, Andy, would you like to tell everyone where they can uh, find Project Censored's work and where they can get the new book? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll, I'll just preface that by saying, uh, you know, in line with some of the things we've been talking about, um, I think we need to refocus on the idea of listening as a political act, right? The kind of, right, it's a political act. It's the kind of engagement that we need uh, to have a robust democracy, to maintain or uh, regain a robust democracy. Um, you can find out more about what we're up to at the project by looking at projectcensor.org, uh, though we're skeptical of social media uh, and the way that they engage in the filtering of news. You can also find the project on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and you can tune in to the Project Censored show um, which uh, you can find information about on the website. The weekly radio show of the project um, is also another platform to stay in touch with us on. Well, that's great. And uh, I plan to come on the Project Censored show sometime pretty soon to talk about my book. I've been on there a few times and it's always very cool. And I'm happy that Mickey has a new host, Eleanor uh, Goldfield, right, is the new co-host? Absolutely. Yep. Eleanor's doing a great job. And uh, we're really excited about it, exciting about the prospects of it. And again, projectcensored.org is where folks can go learn more. And I also wanted to commend you quickly, Aaron, on the work that you've done, uh, the work you were doing uh, on the JFK documentary and the whole series that you've done really unpacking this unhistory as it were around such serious elements. And you're one of the few people that really dives deeply into to that important history. And uh, I commend you for not just having the courage to report about these kinds of things, because it's, it's definitely not popular, but uh, being educated enough in a way that you really know where to go and find this information and make it more palatable for people who have a hard time digesting it. Well, thank you. I think that the getting the doctorate at the same time that I was teaching high school was kind of a good thing to do because, uh, you know, a smart high school student is, uh, is, is not so different from the average person that you'd want to reach out there. So it's been a, it's been a cool exercise in a way. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people and, uh, I've been helped a lot by, you know, people like you that have given me a boost at different times. Right now, Peter Phillips is writing the introduction to my to my book. So he's another project censored, uh, stalwart supporter and, uh, you know, a, a top guy there ran the, was the head of the project censored for a while. Right. A and, long time. Uh, yeah. So this is, uh, it's, it's always awesome when we can get back together. I hope to make it out there to another one of those conferences, uh, whenever things are back to normal, uh, hopefully gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.
It's always great to spend time with Mickey and Andy. It was at a Project Sensor conference where my mentor and good friend Lance DeHaven-Smith made his last public appearance, along with Mark Crispin Miller, Matt Witt, and myself. It was also where we held a wonderful panel that I had organized with Peter Phillips, Mark Crispin Miller, Abby Martin, and me, moderated by Mickey Huff himself. The panel discussion was entitled Propaganda and the Deep State. It was really fantastic. Too bad the audio got destroyed. This is why the left seems to lose a lot. We have to step up our AV game, everybody. If you are a new American Exception listener, please consider subscribing on Patreon. We have lots of material that you can't find anywhere else offering deep dives into the dark side of the lawless U.S. empire. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and Casey Moore for his artwork. Thanks also to Mock Orange for providing the music. Keep chasing the light.